Good morning, everybody. I um, want to invite our children to Children's Church. If you want to meet your teacher at the back there, just an age-appropriate setting to hear the scriptures for our kids. So as they're going, uh, let me open us in a word of prayer. Lord, uh, we, we do sing to you this morning, and as we said, all the nations uh, sing to you. Lord, you have spread your goodness beyond the confines of Israel. You have surrounded the globe with your glory. And Lord, we are grateful recipients of your mercy that we get to be here to hear about who you are and what you've done and your mercy, your rescue of us, uh, your leading of us. Lord, thank you for your grace. Uh, we, we can't uh, fully grasp all that you've done yet, but we'll have an eternity to unpack all of the wonderful things you've done on our behalf. Uh, thank you for your mercy, Lord. We're, we're grateful. And Father, I want to pray for um, uh, Daniel as he goes off to India this week uh, to conduct training with pastors and church planters. Uh, Lord, we thank you for his participation in this church, leading for so long as a pastor in the past. And Lord, now that you've called him to, um, to international work and to supporting the church, we ask your blessing on him. So Lord, as he's teaching this week, both in New Delhi and in Northeast India, Father, would you send your spirit to teach with him, to apply the things that he's bringing out from the scriptures, to help the pastors and the church leaders and the church planters that he's meeting with, to grow in their understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to trust more fully in the power of the Holy Spirit as he works in and amongst them. And Lord, we want that same thing for us. Would you grow us in understanding your word? Would you grow us in the spirit? Would you send more of your spirit upon us? And Lord, would you accomplish great things in and through us? We pray that we would honor you and glorify your name in all that we do. Uh, be with us now as we open your word. Help us to see and to understand, to believe and to trust. We ask in Christ's name, amen. So we're finishing Peter's story finally. And you know what? We're going to hear the story a third time. He's going to tell us one more time. Um, and again, Luke wrote it that way on purpose. He could have summarized and he chose not to. So there must be something going on here. So as we go through it one more time, um, what we're going to actually look at now, the, the focus changes a little bit. It shifts just a touch. And what we're going to see is gospel change comes. There, there's something significant has happened in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that brings a gospel change that just keeps overflowing. But gospel change can sometimes be hard to grasp. And so what we're going to see is, first of all, the report of this change and then there'll be an evaluation, what is this change? And then finally, the response to that change. So that's what's going on in this section. And remember again that the book of Acts is about Jesus' disciples making disciples. And so we can't lose track of that central theme as we talk about this gospel change. We're making disciples. That's what we're called to do. That's what Jesus is showing us how to do. And so that's what happens here. So first of all, the report of what has just happened. It starts with, now the apostles and the brothers who, were thout, who throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had received the word of God. That's the report. Peter had gone into Cornelius' house and began to preach to him the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit fell on the whole household. It was his friends, his family, close acquaintances, maybe his military entourage. The Holy Spirit fell on all of them. This is brand new. This is that gospel change. Gentiles now are converted. And if you remember last week, I said Cornelius was not the first Gentile convert. The first Gentile convert was the Ethiopian eunuch. But he went back to Ethiopia 
And according to history, he continued to preach the gospel in Ethiopia. And so there was a large Ethiopian church that was started because of that man's conversion on the road home. The difference with Cornelius is Cornelius ain't going anywhere. He is in Damascus, or he's in uh, Caesarea, and he's not leaving. He's been assigned there. There are already disciples in Caesarea. So when, when Cornelius becomes a believer, him and his household, they are incorporated into the church that exists there. And so that's what's so different about Cornelius is not he's the first Gentile convert. He's the first Gentile now welcomed into the church as a collective body. So this is really different. This is a huge change. And what we see this week is the apostles and the brothers who throughout Judea hear about that. Now, when it says the apostles and the brothers, um, the word apostle is a funny word in the, in the New Testament. Uh, we tend to think of the 12 apostles, and we think that that's what that word means all the time. But what we're going to see in a few chapters is Barnabas and Paul are called apostles. And what we saw in chapter 1 was Paul was not the 12th apostle. They appointed Matthias to be the 12th apostle. So apostle can mean more than just the 12. What apostle means at its root is sent ones, the ones who are sent, an envoy, uh, an ambassador, that kind of thing. So the 12 were special. They were picked by Jesus, and they were given a, a special duty which they had to carry out, which was to carry that message forward. Um, eventually, we'll, we'll come to see apostles as broader than that. Just it, We would use the word missionary, most likely, when we say apostle. Um, someone who is sent out to carry the message out. So what does it mean here in chapter 11? I'm not positive, but I think we're still at the stage where they haven't sent missionaries out yet, have they? It's been a, a very rare occasion when people move around, and they've been only moving in Judea. The beginning of the missionary movement we'll see is, is Paul, and he's coming up in a few chapters. So I think what they mean by apostles and the brothers here is the twelve and the brothers. And now, again, we're gonna, I'll probably have to repeat this repeatedly throughout, repeat it repeatedly. I just repeated myself, repeating myself of repeating. Anyway, we'll, we'll hit that word brothers a number of times, and I want to be clear on this. If you have an ESV, if you look, there's a footnote, and it says at the bottom that when it says brothers, it doesn't just mean men. It means men and women. The word for brothers there, it really is the word brother, Adelphoi, which is uh, brothers. But it applies to the women as well. It's not a gender-exclusive term. It means those who are believers. So what they're saying here is that the apostles and all the other disciples in Judea have heard about this Gentile converting and joining the church. What's their response? It doesn't say. We don't know. It, they may be in shock still. This, this is something huge. But think about what those people, what those believers in Judea have heard so far. The first thing that we hear about being reported to all of them was Saul. Saul was ravaging the church in Jerusalem. He was hauling people off, arresting them, taking them away. He was busting up home churches. He was terrorizing the church throughout Jerusalem. And then the believers throughout the area hear, oh my gosh, he's on the way to Damascus. And he's got letters and he's going to spread his persecution out of Damascus. What are we going to do? Nobody's safe from this man. Silence. He appears in Jerusalem preaching Jesus Christ. Now you're a believer in Judea and you hear this story. And wait, wait, the greatest threat to us is now preaching Jesus? This is wild. I can't believe this is happening. What a change. How could God do something this amazing? That's incredible. 
And now look at what the Judeans, uh, the Judean Christians are hearing, the believers throughout Judea are hearing. A Gentile is converted. This must be earth-shattering for them. These are some big, dramatic things that are going on. And they hear that, that this, this Gentile now has become a believer and that now they're, they're going to have to figure out what to do with Gentiles. Up until this point, culturally, they kept separate from Gentiles. Oh, you could work with them and you could trade with them and sell with them, but boy, you, you never went in their house. You never ate with them, clearly, because they ate unclean food. And now all of a sudden they've got this problem there are Gentiles in the church. What do we do with these guys? How do we handle this? How does the, the church up until this point has been predominantly Jewish? And now things are beginning to change. So there's something going on. Something changed. And, and we don't know what their response is. I think, I, I like to think anyway, that Luke wrote it that way because there's stunned silence. <laughs> they just didn't know what to think. All of a sudden there's Gentiles in the church and they're just like, uh, Wow. But there is a group who is vocal about this. And so the next verse says, so when Peter went to Jerusalem, so Peter returns back to Jerusalem, the circumcision parties criticized him. The circumcision party, actually the word party is not in there. It's really, in Greek, it's just the circumcision. But party kind of works because we know what that means. There's a group of people who are, who are into circumcision and they criticize him. And their criticism is, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Now, so far, this is the first time we've been introduced to the circumcision or the circumcision party. They are going to be a chronic pain throughout the rest of the New Testament. They will constantly be causing problems. But right now, they haven't really gone their direction. They haven't gone in the, in the, the way that they're going to go yet. Right now, it's just probably a group of Jewish believers who are being really snicky really persnickety and, and wanting all these fine details ironed out. And one of the things they seem to be convinced of is you have to be circumcised to become a Christian. And you went to an uncircumcised Gentile. Why would you do that? So that's the criticism that's lobbied against him is you can't do those things. We're Jews. We don't associate with Gentiles. We don't eat with Gentiles. This is our tradition. This is our culture. This is how this has worked. Peter... You walked with Jesus. What on earth are you thinking? That's the accusation that's lobbed against him. And so that's, that's the report and the response. And, and if I've got it right, part of the response is dumb silence. Uh -huh. And part of it is opposition, or at least questioning. Why is this happening? So this is going to be the big theological question for the rest of the New Testament is what do we do with Gentiles in the church? It's going to come up repeatedly. Um, it's going to get really bad when we get to Paul, but we're not there yet, so I don't want to jump ahead. So then the next thing that happens is there's an evaluation. They ask Peter, why would you do such a thing? And so Peter, what he does is he tells the story again. He repeats the story one more time. One of the things that Peter does, though, is as he tells the story of his going to Cornelius, he doesn't start with Cornelius. He starts with himself. Um, that seems pretty authentic that if I was to ask you something, you wouldn't start with, you know, the third hand, you would start with your personal experience with something. And so that's where he begins is with his personal experience. His telling of the story is almost, but not quite word for word for the way that Luke said it originally. There are a few minor changes. I'm talking about Peter's speech, not necessarily the, the narrative. The narrative has been reordered by Peter, but Peter's words are almost exact. 
And we know the story. We've heard it. This will be the third week in a row. He's in Joppa praying. He goes into a trance, and he says, I saw a vision. That's a new word that he's introduced, is a vision. So this trance that he's seen is a vision of something. God has given him this insight. And he describes, once again, the sheep being let down. And he says, um, looking closely in verse 6, I observed animals and beasts of prey. That's a new little detail, is beasts of prey. And the really great significance of that is, I don't have a clue what the significance of that is. He simply mentions it. Um, you don't tell the same story exactly the same way every time you tell the story. And so, yeah, so Peter used a different word. I don't think it's a big deal. <laughs> there are beasts of prey. And he, he retells the story again. He heard the voice, Peter, kill and eat. By no means, for nothing unclean has ever entered my mouth. That's a little di bit different. I've never eaten. But how do you eat? You generally put things in your mouth. So again, this is a difference that's not really a difference. It's, it's not anything to worry about. And the, answer, the voice answered a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times and it was taken away. And again, we're getting this from Peter's perspective. So Peter is just had this vision. He's sitting on the roof. He's dazed. He's going, what on earth could that mean? And immediately, there were three people at the front door. And so that's what he tells us next is that um, these, um, the Spirit told him to go down to the front door and to meet them. The Spirit told him to do that, making no distinction. So whatever the vision was that Peter saw, he's beginning to get through the Holy Spirit an answer to that is, I've just been told, rise, kill, and eat food that I would consider unclean and common. And I'm told that it's not unclean and common. God has declared it to be clean. And now three people show up and the Spirit says, go and make no distinction. So that was last week. You remember we talked about the comparison between the food laws and the Gentiles. Those were there to isolate, to, to insulate, to create a special people in, in uh, Israel. Those food laws are gone now, not just because God changed his mind and said, oh, you know, pigs are okay after all. I, I, you know, you guys have done without bacon for thousands of years. You can have bacon now. We're, we're okay with that. That's not what he did. He, he, what he's doing is he's looked and he said these food laws had a defined purpose. That purpose has been fulfilled. Jesus Christ has been born. He's lived a perfect life. He died a, a death on a cross. He rose again. And now I am not making that distinction between Jew and Gentile anymore. So the food laws are gone. They were representative of the barricade between Jew and Gentile. So that was that vision, and he got it because he saw these three guys show up right after the vision is done and is told, don't make a distinction anymore. Now, what Peter leaves out here is he invited them in. <laughs> they spent the night. He doesn't tell them that part. He's answering their question. You said, I went and ate with Gentiles. Okay, we'll talk about that. I'm not going to bring up the fact that they slept in my house. Um, that might be too much for you guys. So let's just press on, shall we? So he says that they went, and, and he replies, or he, he explains, why did these guys come? Because, um, because an angel told them to. An angel stood in his house. He doesn't mention Cornelius by name at all. He doesn't mention his occupation. He pretty much assumes you know everything you need to know about Cornelius. What you don't know is an angel stood in his house and spoke to him and said, send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter, and he will declare a message to you by which you will be saved. That's a new detail as well. As a matter of fact, if you look at how he's been talking about that, that story so far is uh, when it happened, the angel told Cornelius, send to Simon Peter, 
and have him come. No mention about a message. When Simon Peter shows up at Cornelius' house, he says, so why'd you send for me? And he, Cornelius says, we want you to tell us everything the Lord has commanded you. It's a little bit more detail. Now Peter looks and he says, well, there's more to it. It wasn't just what I was commanded. I was told to give them a message by which they may be saved. Whose idea was that? Was that Peter's idea to go preach the gospel to him? It was communicated by an angel. It was dictated by a vision. It was reinterpreted and understood by the work of the Holy Spirit. And now he goes and he preaches the gospel of salvation to the Gentiles. So what Peter has just done is he said, if you don't like it, you're not arguing with me. There's the problem. These guys have been saved. And so when he said, then he begins to explain what happened. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, on them just as on us at the beginning. So as I began to speak, don't you wish you had gospel encounters like that? Well, you, you, you know what? I've got a message for you. If you put your hope in, bam, they're, they're converted. I'm not done yet. <laughs> Stop being converted. I'm, I've got to finish this. That's what happened with Peter is he begins to tell them the story of Jesus Christ. You know what's going on in Judea, and all of a sudden they're all saved. Um, the spontaneous pouring out of the Holy Spirit so that Peter could confirm and see something miraculous has happened in these people. So as I began to tell them, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. Remember that no distinction? God makes no distinction. Just like we receive the Holy Spirit, so they receive the Holy Spirit. He fell on them just like he fell on us at the beginning. So he explained to them the message of the gospel, and they believed it. And do you remember the, the gospel message we heard last week from Peter? Was it anything different than we preach today? It was the exact same message. That's the message by which people are saved. That's the message by which people become believers in Jesus Christ. They become disciples by hearing his story. So as he began to explain it, the spirit fell on them. So the circumcision party is, they're going to be this ongoing problem, but really what they're saying is that's not okay, that the Holy Spirit fell on them like that. And, and the circumcision party comes up a number of times throughout the Bible. Acts 21, we'll get there. Um, they're not named by name, but what happened is um, that uh, Paul has gone to see James and the elders. He's, he's returned to Jerusalem after his missionary trips. And the response from James and the elders is, um, James says, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. There's a problem. They're all zealous for the law, and they've been told about you that you preach to the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to the customs. Did the problem go away? It's still there in Acts chapter 21. They have not even processed this idea. The Holy Spirit fell on these Gentiles. They're still opposing it. And then in Galatians, uh, Galatians 2, we mentioned it last week, for certain men came from James uh, he, because Peter was eating with the Gentiles. And when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Same thing. It's that same group. They're, they're saying that same thing. Ephesians chapter 2. Therefore, remember, at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh were called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. It's the same phrase, the circumcision party, which is made in the flesh by hands. And then here's the greatest condemnation of this attitude of the circumcision party. 
Paul is writing to Titus and he says how to find elders. He says, he, that is an elder, must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. That's a pretty big accusation against them. So you see where they go is we're heading towards insolent, insubordinate people who are opposing. And, and according to what we've just read, who are they opposing? Are they opposing Peter? Are they opposing Paul? They're opposing the Holy Spirit. They're telling the Holy Spirit, you're not allowed to do this because we believe that circumcision should come first. The problem is the gospel is at stake here. The truth of the gospel is what's at stake by the circumcision party saying this. Is they're saying you can't do those things. If Galatians chapter 5, verse 2, Paul says, Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. If you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. That is a gospel issue. The, the threat by these, the circumcision party is not merely cultural. It roots itself in the nature of the gospel. If you accept what the circumcision party is saying, Christ will not benefit you in any way. Why? I testify to you again that every man who accepts circumcision, that he is obligated to keep the whole law. Can you keep the whole law? Did Jesus keep the whole law for you? That is the gospel. That's why circumcision is such an important point at this part, is to, be, to come under circumcision, to put your hope in the fact that you have been circumcised, is to deny the gospel of Jesus Christ, that your righteousness comes from him and him alone. So that's why it's such a big issue. Peter reports it to them and just kind of sets it before them. The Holy Spirit came on these men because we preached to them, not because they got circumcised. I can't think of an example in the Bible where somebody was circumcised and the Holy Spirit fell on them. It just it doesn't make any sense. That's why in Galatians, Paul says, how did you receive the Spirit to begin with? Was it by observing the law or was it by hearing with faith? So it's just, that's the indication is, the Holy Spirit is the indication that you have received Jesus Christ. And nobody gets it by being circumcised. You don't receive the Holy Spirit by being circumcised. It's just a, a, a complete confusion of categories there. So they're adding to the law. They're trying to change what, what, uh, what, God is doing in the preaching of the gospel. And it's, it's disastrous. It can be disastrous. So that's the, the, the evaluation of it. This is the case that Peter has now presented to them. Here's the, here's the evaluation. And what's the response? Well, the, the section ends with, they say, well, the Gentiles have received the gift of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, they're, they, they're quiet and they simply glorify God for it. So that's the response. But how do we get there? Between now and then, what was it that convinced them? Well, what convinced them was Peter's story, so his experience, but also listen to what he says next. He says, as I was beginning to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them at the beginning. And I remembered the words of the Lord, how he said, John will baptize with water, but, I will, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. What Peter just did is he appealed to Scripture. What? The scripture wasn't written yet. At this point in church history, we didn't have a New Testament. 
So as Peter is appealing to Scripture, what he does is he appeals to the words he heard himself Jesus speak. So he's appealing to authority beyond himself. He's saying, this is what Jesus said. And, and as an apostle, as one of the twelves, he's been given the authority to say these things because he went with Jesus for that whole time. So when he appeals to the circumcision party, he doesn't do it based on simply experience. He starts with experience. This is what we saw. And he brings in another authority, proto-Bible, if you will, proto-New Testament. And he says, this is what the Lord said. This is how this applies. So this is how we are to evaluate these things, is we don't evaluate them simply on, did it happen? There are plenty of things that did happen. The question for us is not, did it happen? The question is, is this from the Lord? And how do we tell if it's from the Lord? We appeal to Scripture. We, we go to the Bible and we say, let's evaluate it based on what the Bible says. So this is, this is the thing that we have to watch is, are we evaluating these things based on the Scripture or based on simply experience? Because, and the reason I say that is because what's our calling? Our calling is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. So when change comes, when this big major change comes rolling in, it must be evaluated. It has to be evaluated. We don't just accept change because change comes. We stop and we evaluate it. At the same time, we don't resist change because it's change. Otherwise, we'd still be speaking Greek or Aramaic, and we'd be sitting in a, a house with no air conditioning, no lights, and no carpeting. And how would you like that? Or maybe we'd still be in caves or something. This is different. What we're doing is very different than what they did in the first century. But at the same time, it's very much the same. It's just a different setting. So what you see is there are cultural changes that happen. There are things that, that happen because the culture has changed. That's one of the brilliant things about the gospel is the gospel is not rooted in one particular culture. You don't have to become a first century Greek or Jew in order to become a Christian. The truth is so big, it's so expansive, it goes beyond the first century. It goes beyond Greek culture. It goes beyond Jewish culture. It can translate into anything because the intent of the gospel was to take over the entire world. It was to go everywhere. So the question that we have as a modern-day contemporary church, we have to ask the question, what changes come? Because I can guarantee changes come. Every single generation has looked back and said, it ain't like it used to be. But the question is, what isn't like it used to be? Has the gospel changed? If the gospel has changed, we're in big trouble. If the gospel changes, hit the doors and don't come back. But if the gospel remains the same and the way it's expressed in a culture changes, that's just the way it is. Cultures by nature change. You know what else is a culture? When you put bacteria in a Petri dish, that's a culture. It grows and it changes and it turns colors and it gets fuzzy. Ask Lauren. She can tell you what kind it is just by the smell and the look of it. That's what she gets paid to do. That's what cultures do. So when, when we look out today and we say our culture is changing, that's a good thing. It may not be changing in a good way, but the fact that it's changing means it hasn't died. It, it may be coughing quite a bit right now. It may be sputtering, trying to find its way, but it hasn't died. When a culture becomes stagnant, 
then it can begin to shrivel and die. The, the group becomes smaller and smaller as you head toward that central idea. So the culture growing and changing is just the way it is. It, it's just the nature of, um, of humanity. The, the next generation will do things different than we do. I, that was, to me, that was a shock. I'm still, you know, like a 20-year-old in the 1980s thinking, this is the way it is, man. This is just, it's always like this. And then the next generation comes along and they do things different. I'm like, I'm beginning to sound like my dad now. You, you don't, you, that's not how it should be. But it's their culture. It's their world. They don't have to live in my world. They have to live in their world. So, so changes come like that. The church, the brilliance of the church, the brilliance of Jesus' church is throughout all of these cultural changes. It survived. It thrived in a Roman culture, which was barbaric. It was horrible. They would actually throw people to lions for entertainment. Now, I'm a Lions fan, but I'm talking football. Nobody gets ripped in pieces. They would throw them to actual lions just for fun. That would be their entertainment. They didn't have a view of humanity that said, these people are created in God's image. They're all equal. They should all be treated with respect. They powerful wins. If I can chuck them in the lion's den, I do. If they can chuck me in, well, good luck. I'm going to fight to the death. They didn't have a, an idea that people are equal or valuable for anything. It was purely commercial enterprise. Um, they had slavery. It wasn't as bad as American slavery, but it was bad. They would treat people, you, you lost a battle, now you're a slave, too bad. That culture was brutal. They didn't have abortion because they didn't have the medical terms, the medical tools to perform an abortion. So you know what they did? They would have a baby, and if the father didn't pick up the baby, the servants would take the baby out and set him on the curb. That's it. They would, that was called exposing the children. They would set the children out and say, this ain't my kid, I don't want him in my house. And they would sit out there and die if nobody picked him up. This, the Roman culture was brutal and the church thrived in it because the church wasn't brutal. Because the church treated human beings as respectable. The church accepted slaves as equal with the master. If you read Philemon, that's what you see is Paul is appealing to, to uh, um, Philemon's master who I'm drawing a blank on right now. Onesimus. Onesimus was the slave. Philemon was the owner. He appeals to Philemon, you accept uh, Onesimus because he's a brother in Christ. That was unheard of. That didn't happen. The early church went out and gathered up those babies. That blew the Romans' minds. Why would you do something like that? So in the middle of this br brutal culture, the, the church survived because the gospel didn't change. The fall of the Roman Empire, going into the Middle Ages... The culture just about disintegrated to almost nothing for a long time, and the church held on. So now we're in the 20th century, the 21st century, and can the church survive this? The changes are coming, folks. Our culture around us is, is moving rapidly. Can we survive? Can the church survive this? Well, the church can survive if she holds that, that initial message. Jesus Christ died for your sins. He, he, you have forgiveness only through Jesus Christ. It's that old-timey religion. I mentioned it last week. Peter preached that old-time gospel in the first century, and we preach that same gospel. The question for us is, how do we process the change? So first, the first application for this is, change is coming. It just is. It, the, the culture is always going to be different. 
we shouldn't resist change for resisting change's sake, but there are some things we should, have, should resist change to. And that's why the second point of what we see here is we need to learn how to evaluate that. How do we look at change and say, is this good change or is this bad change? How do we, how do we figure out if this is okay? And it's not simply based on experience, though experience has to come into it. So for example, the problem that we have here is Gentiles are now part of the church. What do we do? We have to evaluate that in light of what the scriptures say. So I've already shown you that Peter appealed to what would eventually become New Testament scripture, what Jesus taught him. But that doesn't come out of nowhere. It's not like this is just you know, from nowhere. There's plenty of Old Testament examples of this truth that the Gentiles are going to be coming in. For example, Genesis 22, when God, the, God makes his covenant with Abraham three times, this is the third time in Genesis 22, he says, I will surely bless you and I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that's on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemy. Wait, he just said he was going to multiply his offspring and now he says your offspring will possess the gates of his singular enemy. And your offspring shall be, uh, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you obeyed my voice. So he went from a multitude of offspring to a single offspring, and in that offspring will all the nations, all the nations be blessed. It's a covenant promise that God made that the nations would be blessed by Abraham. Isaiah chapter 19. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and Assyria will come into Egypt, and Egypt into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. That doesn't really sound hopeful at this point, does it? Two pagan nations worshiping together? This can only be bad. It gets better. In that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria. What? A blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. Isaiah is looking at this Assyrian army about to destroy the nation, and his promise is, Egypt is my people. Assyria is the work of my hands. All three will come together. Israel will be a blessing. The nations are going to come in. Zechariah 8.20. Zechariah was one of the prophets after the return from exile, when they come back and they start building the, the temple again. Zechariah says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, People shall come, even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days, ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. The nations are going to come and grab onto the Jews and say, we want to worship your God. That's a huge promise. That is a tremendous thing that God has said he's going to do. Finally, in Ephesians, when we get to the New Testament, does anything change? No, Ephesians, 4, or Ephesians 3 says, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. 
which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the same promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So when the, when the question, when the issue of the Gentiles coming into the church arises, if they evaluate it by scripture, they can look at the Old Testament and say, God had always promised he was going to do this. God had said this long ago he was going to bring the Gentiles in. So here's a cultural change that's coming to them, and they evaluate it by scripture. And what Paul is telling them, and does Paul exist at this point? Is Paul an, a, a believer in Jesus Christ by the time this happens? Yes, he is. He's not on the scene. He's, he's off in Tarsus. But this is where he says, the mystery has been revealed to me that the, the Gentiles are now co-heirs. As a matter of fact, what Peter writes in one of his, apostles, or his epistles is that you have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. There's no distinction. Did God make a distinction? There is no distinction. So change comes, but change must be evaluated. So we can't resist change because it's change, nor must we accept change because it's change. What we're called to do is we're called to stop and to look at the change and ask the question, what's going on here? Now, I want to do something because I think it's kind of interesting. I read that part about Peter quoting Jesus, and then finally they come to the point where they go, okay, the Gentiles are in. I read that and I say, they, they evaluated it by scripture. I say that because I'm an evangelical. I believe that the final authority for all of these things is the word of God. That's how I read it. That's how I understand it. A Roman Catholic would look at this and say, but it's Peter. It's the first pope. And what Peter, the first pope, did is he met with the, the leaders in Jerusalem. This wasn't quite the magisterium that we see in the Roman Catholic Church yet, but this was the church leadership getting together. And Peter had made the pronouncement, and the church authenticated it. This is what we see the Roman Catholic Church doing, is Peter made the announcement, the church evaluated it, they agreed, that was the way it was. That's how a Roman Catholic might read this. Uh, an Orthodox believer, an Eastern Orthodox, would, would look at this, and they'd go, eh, Peter, yeah. The point was the church made the decision. It wasn't just one person running off on their own because the authority for Eastern Orthodox is the council of the church. So this isn't really the first ecumenical council, but it is the first meeting of the church to decide something important. And what you see is doing them doing exactly what we do. And so whether you're Roman Catholic, Protestant, or Eastern Orthodox, you look at this and you go, yeah, we totally agree because we're going to read it our own way. I want to take a step back and say, okay, what do we have in common there? because we are all called Christian in some broad sense of the term. What do we all have in common as we evaluate this? Nobody looked at it and said, it's the way the culture is going, we might as well go with it. The, the, the evangelical picks up his Bible and looks and says, it's in the word of God. Therefore, we accept that the Gentiles are part of the church. It's, it's what the Bible says. The Roman Catholics appeal to a, an authority beyond just the culture and they say God has spoken through his church, through the leadership, through the magisterium of his church, and that's what the way it is. They don't appeal to the fact that Peter just liked it. They look to a greater, a greater authority. The same thing with the Eastern Orthodox. They say the church agreed. This was very early in the church, but the church agreed. They appeal to what they would consider a source beyond personal opinion or beyond what culture is all about. So that's why I'm saying what we have to do is we have to evaluate these things carefully by the authority that God has given us. As evangelicals, we say the only real, reliable, true authority is the word of God, period. 
And so we have to look to the word of God and say, these cultural changes that are coming, are they in accordance with what God says in his word? Are they neutral? Maybe they have nothing to do with it. Maybe God's doing something miraculous and we're going to see a change coming. I just read an article this morning about this new TV show that's called God Friended Me. It's about a, a, a guy is a, uh, the son of a preacher, but he's an atheist, and he has a, a podcast where he spouts atheism, and suddenly somebody on Facebook named God friends him. And so this kind of blows his mind, and, and it winds up turning into a kind of uh, touch by an angel kind of thing where God gives him things he's got to go do to be good to people and help people be good. And the article is reflecting on it and saying, what is up with faith-based stuff in, in their culture anymore? There's another TV show called The Good Place. I've never seen it, but apparently that's a kind of faithy-based kind of thing, faith-y. And we're not talking about evangelical Christianity, biblically-based stuff, but, you know, it's generally mushy religion. And they're saying, you know, millennials, by and large, are either atheist or not interested in organized religion. Why is CBS betting on this television program? Because maybe God's doing something. Maybe it's really weird at this point and we can't interpret it, but maybe... We're finding that we do need religion in our lives. I don't know. I'm, it's too early to tell. And maybe it's just more deception heading down up some murky path into goop. That's kind of what I think it is. But Because none of that stuff is really good, solid Christianity. Jesus is kind of a minor character in all of those things. But the point is, are we going to evaluate these based on what the culture is doing and say, well, it must be right if that's what's popular? Or are we going to say, we're going to go to the word of God? Here's the point. At the bottom, at the root of all of this, the theme of the book of Acts is we are called to make disciples. We have been made disciples by disciples, and we're called to make disciples. Who are we making disciples of? Jesus Christ or the current cultural wind that blows in this direction or that direction? For a long time in America, the wind blew roughly in Christian directories or trajectories, kind of roughly towards Christianity. The, the wind is changing direction now. Do we go with the wind or do we stick with what we know to be true? That's what, this is, that's what I think this picture is calling us to do is change comes, know that change is coming, evaluate change, go with the change that God has revealed he's doing. Don't change what you're not supposed to change, period. That's why Ephesians 4 talks about us being united in the faith, that God has given gifts to the church, prophets and teachers and evangelists and apostles and, and all these other people, so that the church will be unified, not blown around, blown around by every wind of doctrine. And that's what we're called to do. So as we're, we're navigating these breezy waters that are American culture right now, where we have to remain rooted, where we have to keep coming back to is we have to follow our apostle and say, what does the word say? What did Jesus teach us? Jesus said he would, he would give the Holy Spirit, he would pour out the Holy Spirit. Let's evaluate it in accordance with what Jesus taught us. And the benefit we have that Peter didn't have is Peter was busy creating the New Testament. We have the written, inspired, authorized New Testament that God wanted us to have. So we can go back and we can hear all the apostles' teachings. Just read your New Testament. Now, there's going to be questions, and we're going to wrestle with some things because there's some stuff that might be hard to understand, but we can do that together. We haven't been told to do that in isolation. We haven't been told to give up on it because we can't figure it out. We haven't been told, oh, that's not important. What we have been shown and told is this is our evaluation. This is our standard. This is where we go. 
So that's our calling. That, that's what is coming. And it's, I think it's really great the way Luke threw this in right here. He reported this part of the story right here because what's about to come is Paul and Barnabas. They're going to go into really not Jewish territory. Very, very much not Jewish territory. Caesarea was still in the promised land, even though it was you know, predominantly uh, Gentile. Where Peter and, and uh, Barnabas are going to go is way out there. So we need this route. We need this place where our anchor is sunk in Jesus Christ so that we can say, how do we evaluate these practices? What do the Corinthians need to stop doing? What do they need to continue doing? What do the Galatians need to get so that they won't lose the gospel in the middle of all of this? What are the Thessalonians going to learn by holding to the truths that God has revealed? And what part of their culture are they going to hang on to? And that's okay. This is, that's, that's nothing more than we're asked to do. America is not God's special country in the midst of this. America is just like every other nation. It's going to rise. It's going to fall. I'm sorry. It's going to fall someday unless Jesus returns. I hope it doesn't fall. I like America. I like the way things are. But my hope is not in America. My hope is in Jesus Christ. He transcends this culture, whether this culture is blowing in his direction or away from it. We still have that, that root, that anchor, and that's our hope. So I, th I think it's just really super important that we understand all that's happened in chapters 10 and 11 so that we remain anchored, so that we may continue to navigate the waters well, so that we will continue to walk as disciples and that we will fulfill the call that we've been given, which is make disciples. Because what we're going to be asked to do is tell people to turn their sail 90 degrees and sail in a different direction. It used to be about 30 degrees. Now it's 90 degrees. And it's going to be really hard. But we, we have to evaluate and ask the question, what needs to change in this person? and What is incidental? And what is it that the Holy Spirit is going to change that I can't? Those are the questions that we need to ask. We'll see that play out in the rest of Acts. We'll see that as, as Paul and Barnabas go into ministry. We'll see that go through all of those things. And so let that question resonate in your mind as we, as we read through this, as we teach through this. And see what the Lord teaches you about these things. Might surprise you. I'm looking forward to being surprised. I'm sure I've got stuff wrong. Uh, I'm pretty sure I do. So Lord, come and teach us. Let's pray. Lord, it would be so nice if we lived in a theocracy where we had the script written out and all the Bible lined up and we could just follow what it said and, and walk in accordance with all of those things. But Lord, that's not how you designed this. You ask us to trust you, to put our hope in you. Lord, you've given us your written word, your inscripturated word to guide us. Lord, you've sealed us with your Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit of promise. You've renewed our minds, renewed our hearts. You've written your law on our hearts and then set us loose in a world that's going in thousands of different directions in order to accomplish your purposes. Lord, as we walk, as we disciple, as we encourage each other, as we sing praises, as we do all the things that you've called us to do, Lord, come with us, walk with us, be with us. Show us the way through this. And Lord, we pray that just as Cornelius came into the church and it was a surprise, Lord, would you surprise us with people coming into the church? to be made disciples of Jesus Christ, to follow in what he's taught us. And Lord, we thank you that you've called us to that mission, that you've given us the task, the responsibility, and the privilege of making disciples. Um, even the angel didn't make a disciple out of Cornelius. 
that was left to your church, to Peter, to do. And then after Peter leaves, Cornelius and his household are turned over to the church to help them grow in discipleship, to become better and better believers, to follow you more. Lord, may we do that well. And I pray for all the other gospel-believing, Bible-teaching churches in the Antelope Valley, those who have put their hope in you, that are evaluating everything according to the word. Lord, would you fill all of your churches with people who need to be discipled and lead us all forward. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.